Matthew chapter 13 in your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we want to give you one as a gift. Uh, you can stop by our connections table, which is right out that door right there. We'd love to give you a Bible. Uh, otherwise, you can have one on your phone, the Version app or the Holy Bible app. Uh, you can use that. And if you go to events, uh, you can see our notes right there. You can follow right along pretty easily uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 13. Now, first year of marriage, uh, Adrian and I were in uh, seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of money. She, uh, she worked full-time. I was a student full-time. That's also known as uh, she was my sugar mama. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I was a student, and I was trying to get myself organized, and we were trying to figure out what marriage was like in our first year. Uh, and so we didn't, we didn't have a lot of money, and so when, you know, big purchases came, I mean, it was, it was a, kind of a large discussion about what we were going to buy. And uh, I remember that there was this tool. Now, this is 2005, okay? So um, there was this tool, and maybe some of you know about it, but it was beautiful, and it was called a Palm Pilot, okay? All right, I think I got a picture of one. Is there, you got a picture of one? There it is, okay, yeah. All right, who had a Palm Pilot? Be honest, who had a Palm Pilot? All right, the same people raising their hand all said beepers. Uh, yeah, so yeah, awesome, yeah. Uh, so, and I wanted one. Now, this amazing thing can do some... I mean, it, could, it had your contacts. It could make lists, right? And you can write notes in it. It was beautiful, in a, all in your hand. Imagine that. Of course, you know, two, years, two years later, like Steve Jobs would you know, kill that with the iPhone. Uh, but at the time, I mean, this is like the coolest invention that you could possibly have. All my buddies had them, and I thought, if I could have one of these, and this is my pitch to Adrian, if I could have one of these, I'd be a better person. I'd be a better husband, and I'd be a better pastor if we would just make this investment into our future of buying me a Palm Pilot. And so she agreed. This thing was like 200 bucks, which was a big deal to us. And, you know, so, and she agreed. She's like, okay, whatever. And I got this Palm Pilot, <clears throat> and I was super excited about it. And, uh, you know, and, and my Palm Pilot and me, we had a deep friendship for three whole days. And it was... It was, it was incredible. It was an incredible three whole days. And then I put it in a desk drawer, and I found it four years later after I had my iPhone, and I threw it away. So um, that's, that's the story of my wonderful, uh, wonderful Palm Pilot. Now, I, I've fallen victim to numerous fads over the years, probably hundreds of them, uh, infomercials or whatever, or walking through the store. I'm like, yes, I need that. That's something that's cool. And I'm sure that you have as well. Uh, and now that I'm older and more mature and sophisticated, I uh, you know, have the guilty pleasure of watching youngsters go through uh, the different fads and things like that that they, that they go through in our culture, and they're pretty, pretty quick. Uh, what's sad in our culture is that sometimes when you have when, when you have a passion about something and you're super excited about it and it's, you know, it's everything that you think about while the culture around you actually thinks it's a fad and you're the only one that doesn't know that and it's really hard on you because you're just like, I don't understand why other people don't understand my passion and everybody else thinks it's just a passing, really passing fad. And so actually in our culture, we have a really hard time figuring out what it, what's going to stick and what's not. We we don't know what products are going to be around for a long time. We really don't know what's good and what's bad. And it's really kind of frustrating. Uh, and, and so we're, we're kind of a culture that, that jumps from, the next, from one big thing to the next big thing to the next big thing. Uh, and we really don't have any consistency. Now, this, this whole fad thing, uh, actually, it kind of happened to Jesus. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a big deal during his ministry. 
Actually, Jesus was a pretty big deal uh, during his ministry. You have this guy who comes out of a very poor town in Nazareth, who's a carpenter. Nobody really knew uh, who he was. And then he started to teach. And he started to teach what the Bible says is with authority. And then he, uh, and then he also started to do these miracles, which that will get you a following, right? And so he started, and eventually he started teaching to large crowds and larger crowds and larger crowds. And the Bible actually records, and I think this is pretty supernatural without any type of amplification, but the Bible records that he would teach thousands of people at one time. Uh, We have the feeding of the 5,000, and some theologians believe there's even more people there uh, than 5,000 people. I mean, so this is a miraculous event where thousands of people were following after Jesus and wanting to hear what he had to say and be healed by him and see as many miracles. And at the end of his ministry, you have Jesus riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, uh, and people are laying down their coats in front of him, calling him the king. They actually wanted to, at one time, wanted to force him into being the king. It was a pretty big deal. Even says that in the scripture that the whole city of Jerusalem, the entire city, was bustling with activity and energy about this one man named Jesus. Now, if you know your scripture, that would be called Palm Sunday. They also laid palms in front of him. And five days later, some of those same people that would lay down their coats and lay down their palm trees would yell for his crucifixion. Some of those same people that declared him, wanted him to be the king, were nowhere to be found when he was hanging on a cross. And the Bible then records after his resurrection that the amount of people that were willing to call themselves followers of Jesus were hiding in a small upper room and there roughly was 120 of them. Where'd they go? Where did the thousands of people go? The 5,000 that were fed by him People who had, had undergone miracles with Jesus, where did they go? Was Jesus a fad to them? Was Jesus a fad to me? Is Jesus a fad to me? And maybe I ask you that question. Is Jesus a fad to you? Is this just something that you're doing right now? Because maybe some friends of yours or your family does it. Is Jesus a fad? Now, the interesting thing about Jesus is he actually predicted that this would happen. He knew it. He knew that people would fall away. And he predicted it in one of his parables, a pretty famous parable, and some of you might know it. It's called the parable of the sower, and we're going to find it in Matthew chapter 13. So let's read along. This is Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 1. Read along with me. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. The great crowds, okay, this is a time where he has great crowds, gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables or stories, saying, a sower, meaning something like a farmer who's going out to cast seed, went out to sow or cast seed into his land. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky, rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, 
some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, okay, so this is a parable. Now, we don't use that language except for in the Bible. A parable is a story that is meant to teach a very specific truth so that we can build understanding, okay? Just like my goofy palm pilot is a parable, okay? We still use it today. It's not a secret, all right? So uh, we, Jesus used this method a lot. Actually, it was his most predominant way of teaching uh, the people. Now, sometimes, sometimes his parables or his stories were quite obvious as to what he was talking about. Sometimes they needed a little bit more explanation. This is one of those that needed a little bit more explanation as to what the deeper meaning was. So his disciples kind of come to him and say, hey, what was that one all about? So if you skip down to verse 18 in your Bible, he will explain it to us. Jesus, Jesus says this, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, that is, that is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful." As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Okay, so this parable is one that's told in three of the four Gospels. So we, this is in Matthew, it's also told in Mark, and it's told in Luke. So we get a little bit more details from them. What we see in this is that the sower that Jesus is talking about is God himself spreading the seed. And the seed is the word of God or the good news of the gospel. In Jesus's case, the good news of the kingdom. Okay. And so this is what Jesus was doing throughout his ministry. He says, I am the sower. I'm spreading the seed. Now the good news, so the, and the good news of the kingdom is the gospel. The fact that Jesus eventually for us would die for us and, and cleanse us of our sins. Now, we are, as the church, ambassadors, so in some places, we take this place of the sower. Now, both, and I want you to get this, there's a couple elements in this parable. You have the sower, you have the seed, and you have the soils. The first two, the sower and the seed, are consistent. They never change. The sower is Jesus. He's the one sowing the seed, the farmer. Then you have the seed itself, the gospel. The gospel is unchanging. No matter how much time passes, no matter how many fads and trends come, the gospel is the same all the time. It's never changed. The message has never changed. The culture changes. But then you have this variable of the soil. And the soil represents the human heart. Okay, the soil represents the human heart. And within this parable, Jesus is going to outline the condition of the human heart. Uh, so we have to ask this question, is Jesus a fad to ourselves? And one of the ways that we can do this is do basically a simple heart check. All right, we're going to do some cardio and figure out how our heart is doing. What is the condition of our hearts? And so he's going he's to give us four examples of maybe four different heart conditions that we want to walk through. So if you're taking notes, here they are. Okay? The first one is this, the indifferent heart. The indifferent heart. This is what Jesus says is the seed or the word of God that falls onto the path, that falls along the path. Now, 
you know, you guys can, you guys can get this, okay? A path is packed, hard soil. Nothing grows on a path, right? So the seed falls along the path, and it becomes indifferent. This person is careless, is uninterested. They, are, uh, they hear the greatest news in the world, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and it goes right over their head. They're not interested. They might hear it, but they don't take any type of action with it. Now, okay, if you're a church person, let me talk to you for a second. If you're not a church person, just tune out for a second. If you're a church person, most likely you know this parable, and you've probably heard maybe even a sermon on it before, maybe two. And so you realize that, that, like you realize that you can wait until the fourth soil to start listening, okay? Because you know, like you've been taught, the, 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 you know, the first three soils are people who are not Christians, okay? So you, you're, you're thinking that about this. Let me just say and give you a warning. I actually think that this parable works on two different levels. Yes, it works as a salvific message. That yes, the first three soils are people who hear the gospel and they have three different responses to Jesus, right? On a salvation type of level. On a where you are going to spend eternity type of level. Now, also, I think that it's possible that the Christian heart, one who has been redeemed by the kingdom, can learn a lot about the condition of our heart with these four soils. Here's how I can prove that. Have you ever come to church, listened to something, and listened to the truth, and took no action whatsoever? Could be careless with the word that you've been given. Where you've come, maybe to your Bible in the morning, you've been reading it, and it bears no Uh, You have no interest in what it says. There's no imperative that grabs you. It makes no difference in your life whatsoever because you've been careless with the word. Is it possible that, yes, you're a believer, but in that moment, you have some hard heart issues. You've got an indifferent heart. So be careful to not tune me out over the first three soils because I think it works on two different levels. Okay. So number two. The superficial heart. You have the indifferent heart, and then you have the superficial heart. All right? This is the person that takes action, that hears the word and takes action. What, what the Bible says is you have some soil, and then very quickly after that, you've got some rockiness underneath that soil. So it's unable to take root. This is a person who makes a very emotional decision as it pertains to Jesus. This is, and some of you might get this, this is Thursday night at youth camp. Okay? This is, this is Thursday night where everybody's kind of crying and the worship leader keeps on going forever and ever and ever until everybody decides to make a decision and all your friends are crying and trying to make decisions and pulling you aside. And, like, and, and you're like, okay, I guess, I guess I'll make a decision for Jesus. I'm not really sure what's going on. But you decide to go ahead and make an emotional decision that has nothing to do with you know, actually transforming your life. Or it could be you made an emotional decision based upon your family or your parents. Well, Junior, your mom and I are going to heaven. There's two places where you can go. Heaven, hell, which one do you want to go to? You don't want to spend eternity without us. Like, I mean, that's, some parents do that, for sure. And so you're pushed into this kind of really emotional decision that you, quite, you really don't understand. There's, there's still sin. There's no brokenness in your life. And you've made a decision that you kind of don't get. And so there is the superficial heart. This, 
us heart makes no decision for Jesus. They make a decision out of fear or popularity or family or something. And this kind of easy believe, the easy believism of our culture, of our church culture, specifically in the South, um, it pervades our children's ministries and our youth ministries and even our adult ministries where we really just kind of pray a prayer, after, you know, just pray a prayer after me and you'll be good. The Bible knows nothing of this. The problem is, and what Jesus says, is the problem is at the root. There is no root. The rocky soil does not allow for a root to take place. And so what was a pretty, bubbly churchgoer is eventually exposed to be a sham. And there's nothing to it. Jesus was just a fad to them. And when trial and persecution come, when their faith is tried, they wither and they wilt as if the sun comes up on a weed. So it gets even worse. Here's what's interesting. Jesus uses the words that this, that this particular seed or this particular plant falls away. That's the words that he used. It's a Greek word, right? The Greek word for falls away actually means to take offense. To take offense. Now that's interesting. That's different than falls away. I can imagine that there are folks, even in this room, who made a superficial decision for Jesus, that at some point they're going to feel like they were duped into something, that they were pressed into something. And then eventually, if they think that they're duped into a decision that they didn't want to make in the first place, they're going to take offense to that. And I think that I've seen numerous examples of that. So hear me on a couple things regarding the superficial heart. Parents, let's talk for a second. This is why the superficial heart is why we at the Church of Cane Bay are very careful not to guide your children uh, into making emotional decisions at a very young age. We desire, now hear me, we desire for your children to make decisions for Jesus. We deeply think that they can, they can come as young children, they can come to a saving knowledge of Christ um, they can understand what they're doing. They can be broken o- over their sin. Now, they're not going to be able to understand it all. They're not going to be, under- be able to understand it like your 30-year-old self is going to be able to understand it. That's not true, okay? They're, they're going to have a, a small child's understanding of the gospel, and that's okay. But they do need to have some kind of brokenness over sin. And we also believe in the sovereignty of God. You know, most, most parents, on, on, on good, they really want to do good with those conversations about you and you and you and your mom, or we're going to be in, or I, me, and my, me and your mom are going to be in heaven, so don't you want to be in heaven? And that's out of kind of a good heart. They really want, you really want to see your child in heaven, but don't you also desire to trust in the sovereignty of God? To know that he's going to do good by his children all the time? And so it's not our job to pressure kids into making a decision for, for Christ. Here is our job, though. Our job is to cultivate the soil of a child's heart, to churn it up, to till it up, right? And you might ask, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, we've, get, we've given you a couple resources. We want to resource you to be the chief disciple maker of your children, okay? We've come out with one lately. It's called Salvation and Baptism for Kids. It's free. You can pick, pick it up at our book table. And if you haven't picked one up yet, parents, I would really, really encourage you to do that. It walks you through, how, how do I have a conversation with, about the gospel with my children? How do, I not, how, do I not, how do I avoid the whole, like, emotional, superficial decision 
and walk through them biblically what, the, what, we, what Jesus wants them to do. This is a guide for that. Um, another way of doing that is to attach biblical truths to the things that you're doing, our parent, parental activities. So when we discipline our children, we make sure that we do so justly and consistently, and we speak of sin, not just bad behavior. That we attach something that they've done wrong with the fact that they're sinful. And that that is not only hurts your heart, but it hurts the heart of God. Now, we also want to show our children grace so that when you give your children grace, you, atta- you attach those words. This is, what the, this is what the gospel is all about. This is what God has done for you. God has given to you grace just like I'm giving to you grace right now. And we consistently, here's another way that you can kind of churn up or till up the soil of your child's heart, is consistently give them the word of God read to them, pray with them, meditate on scripture with them, ask them questions about the word of God, get them to memorize scripture with you. All of these things are really good things to do. It's not just about behavior modification. It's about allowing your child's heart to be tilled up for, so that when the gospel is implanted into their life, that they can put down deep roots. Avoid the superficial heart in your children. The second thing I want you to say about this is, you might be thinking about this and thinking, is it possible for me to lose my salvation? Yeah, maybe that's your story. Maybe you came to some kind of emotional decision at youth camp or you're, you know, at some kind of other church event or, or, or something else where you just kind of came to this decision. It was pretty emotional for you and really don't have a whole lot of grip or even memory of it. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, is the Bible saying that I'm going to lose my salvation. Let me tell you this. No, absolutely not. When Jesus has a hold of you, he's not going to let you go even know how many times you try, right? He's going to hold on to you no matter what. Now, here's the question to ask is, did you actually accept Jesus to begin with? That's the real question. If you truly receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you have nothing to worry about. But if there never was any type of understanding of the gospel, if there never was um, any type of transformation of your heart because Jesus saved you, then I think there's something to talk about. There's a famous evangelist. His name was George Whitfield, And uh, he was a big deal, you know, several hundred years ago uh, in America. And uh, he would go around. He was a famous preacher. And he would go around and, and thousands of people would hear George Whitfield come and preach. And he was a great evangelist. And when he would preach, hundreds of people would make decisions for Jesus. They would, they would seriously come and, and they would be affected by George, George Whitfield's message. George was famously asked, George, how many people came to know the Lord today? And he said, I don't know. We will know in a few years. So if you're saying, how do I know if I have a superficial heart? How do I know that I'm just a fad Jesus follower? How do I know that? Well, first of all, if you're asking that question, that's a good sign in itself, that you're self-aware enough to ask yourself that question. Uh, So you need to ask yourself this question. Who did the work of your salvation? Who did the work of your salvation? Do you believe that you were the major catalyst to what has been done. So let me ask you this. Do you think upon that and think, oh, I prayed the prayer. 
I had an emotional experience. I am a good person. I grew up in church. You know, my family grew up in church. Um, And when you think about a relationship with God, it's more about, you know, I've done a lot of good things, and so therefore I'm going to be, me and Jesus are tight. We're good. On the other side of that is, Jesus saved me. Jesus did the work. Jesus died on the cross for me, even though I was a sinner. Jesus is the catalyst in my life that allows me to grow. Jesus does the work. I don't. If that's your heart, then you're probably in good shape. If it's more about the stuff that you've done, then I would begin to worry about your situation. If your religion is based upon what you have done, I think that you have something to worry about. I'll get to that at the end here. Number three. Number three, the divided heart. So we have the indifferent heart, you've got, um, you've, you've got the superficial heart, and now you've got the divided heart. This is the seed among the thorns. Now, this is similar to the, the superficial heart, but it's, it's a little bit different in this way. That this is a person that Jesus is a part of your life. Jesus is not the whole of your life. Let me say it again. The divided heart is one where Jesus is just a section. It's a part of your life. It's something that you do. It's something on your calendar. It's not the whole. That's the divided heart. Now, Jesus gives two specific things that he says about this. He says, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So let's go over that for a second. The worries of the world. This is a person who consistently threatened by anxiety and opportunities. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians can still have a little bit of anxiety. So don't think that if I have anxiety, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But it's true that, that the worries of the world can get in the way and the thorns can begin to grow up. They are anxious. These are people that are anxious that something bad is going to happen, that something is going to wreak havoc in their life, that someone is going to get hurt, that their children are going to get hurt or go wayward, that they're, they're going to get fired from their job and they're going to get, go broke and they're not going to be able to eat and they're not going to be able to have cars or their phone or the internet or something like that. And things are going to go be, begin to go very wrong. Now this plays against America's, what I think is America's greatest hidden idol, which is safety. I think we as a people are in love with our safety, and we worship it. And so when Jesus says the worries of the world are like thorns who creep up, it pulls us away from the Creator who consistently in Scripture says, I have everything under control. We've gotten numerous, numerous prayer requests over the last couple weeks, and I get it, about the election. God has everything in His hands. God has everything in his hands, people. Do not allow the worries of the world to creep up on your heart. God has everything under his control. And it should not hinder your relationship with Christ. So it also says the deceitfulness of riches. Notice that it doesn't say that the, that the plant is quickly choked out. Thorns grow up and they grow up very, very slowly. All right. If, if I said, if I put you outside and say, okay, watch this thorn bush grow, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to even see it. It grows so slowly. The deceitfulness of riches is that in that same way. And this is why Whitfield said, we will know in a few years how many people came to Christ. And this is the desire for consumption. This is, this is the part of your life where you say, Jesus is a section or another player in my happiness. 
that he's not the ultimate source of joy. He's not the only source of my joy. He is one of the sources of joy. That's what the divided heart says. And so it's just like, you know, Jesus can make me happy on Sundays or in the mornings or, you know, sometimes, but there's other things that make me happy as well. This is not what Scripture says. Ask yourself this question, would you be happy with half, with, with half a home, with half of a car, with half of a phone? Jesus isn't happy with half of your heart. He wants the whole thing or none of it at all. So he's not just a part of it. So we have to, we have to think about these two things. So number four. Number four. If you read this before, you know this as the fruitful heart. The good soil is the fruitful heart. And that's why I'm preaching this today, because we can, we're going to define, we always define what a disciple is. A fruitful heart is one who is a disciple, a disciple of Christ, one who follows after Jesus with all of who they are, that they are planting deep roots into the gospel, that it's not just part of them, it's all of them. And so the defining characteristic of the good soil is that you produce and he gives a couple variances for this. And he says, some will produce 30, some 60, some 100. And what he means by that is if you are good soil, you will produce at some kind of level. And some, some are going to produce more. You've got the Billy Grahams of the world or the George Whitfields of the world, and they're going to produce like crazy. And then there's some of us that are going to produce 30 or 60. It, it, it doesn't matter as long as, as long as we're producing fruit. So what does it mean to produce fruit? That's a good question. What does it mean to produce fruit? The Bible helps us out a little bit. On one level, you have what in Galatians it says, fruit of the Spirit. Now, fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 2, 22 through 23, says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is the production of fruit in your life that is Christian character. When Christ, who is our life, dwells within us, when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, then these characteristics, the Spirit of God, these characteristics speak out. Love, joy, peace, kindness, all of these things come out of our lives, uh, our lives as fruit. So when he says you will produce fruit, these are the kind of things that he's talking about. Now the tricky thing about the fruits of the Spirit is they can be faked. It's entirely possible that even if you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, that you can do these things. You can love. You can be kind to people. And it's tricky because it can trick other people and it can trick you too into believing that because I'm doing these things, because I'm doing the work of these fruits, that means that God accepts me and loves me. We have to be careful that we're not going to fool ourselves with fake fruit. So on another level, so there's the first level of the fruit of the Spirit, and then there's another level of kind of the, the fruit of a missionary disciple. And this is much harder to fake. You have a, the fruit of a missionary disciple. The believer who wants to replicate the joy that they've received in Christ and give it to other people. That they have received great happiness and joy in their relationship with Christ, and they want to make sure that everybody else, their family, their friends, know about it. So they're preaching the gospel at every level. And this is what good soil produces. At the Church of Cain Day, we've, de we've defined what a disciple is. Because, you know, we're, we're walking through our missional community uh, phase of our year. It's a big deal. We want people to be invested into missional communities. Because we believe it gives you the best opportunity to exercise yourself as a disciple in Jesus. And so here's how we define it. 
We define it as someone who is growing in their relationship with God, that they're putting deep roots through scripture, prayer, and accountability, that they're growing. They're also giving, giving of that fruit that lives inside of them, the spirit of God that lives inside of them, that joy, that peace, that patience, that kindness that lives inside of them, that they can give those things away through our time, through our talent, through our treasure. And then third, this is what I'm talking about with this missionary disciple. A disciple, somebody who is being fruitful in their relationship with God, is going for Jesus, is going and spreading the gospel, sharing the fruit, making sure that they reproduce. And this is how we reproduce 30, 60, and 100 fold. Now, I want to make sure you understand. Let's bring it around. Jesus ended up with 120 faithful people in an upper room. And he knew that when he faced the crowds of 5,000, that eventually they would dwindle down to 120. The reason why he had no problem with that whatsoever is because 5,000 fad followers of Jesus does nothing for the kingdom of God. But one good soil that can produce 30, 60, and 100 fold can do amazing things. And so that's why he was okay with 120. That's why he was fine with it. Because he knew that one seed can produce a whole orchard. He knew it. And so he was fine with it. And he is simply uninterested in fad followers. He's uninterested in it. He wants good soil that will produce good fruit that will multiply into many, many orchards for the kingdom. So with this, I want to I end with a couple opportunities. Um, you have been given uh, a, a card that looks like this. It's called Five for Five. Uh, in your bulletin. Go ahead and pull that out for a second. I want to give you an opportunity of, to bear some fruit, uh, to walk together for the next month. So here's something fun. On September 18th, you can circle this in your calendar. If you've got a Palm Pilot, put it in there. Um, uh, September 18th is our fifth birthday as a church. We'll be five years old on September 18th. Pretty exciting. And uh, one of the things that's happening is uh, not only, so not only we're celebrating that, we're also celebrating the launch of our first church plant, which is Compass Church on September 18th. That's going to be fun as well. So for the next month, we're going to have a birthday celebration month together uh, where we're going to challenge each other to invest and to invite folks into a relationship with Christ, into a relationship with this church to connect people to other disciples. And we want to do that through this way called Five for Five, Okay. And, uh, and here's, here's how it works. You'll see on the back of the card, it's an invitation type thing. On the back of the card, it says, we want you to invite just one person into a huddle. Now, a huddle is two or three people that are gathering together uh, any time during the week, at any point, r- reading the scripture together and keeping each other accountable, asking themselves about how their life is going. Uh, and uh, there's how many people are in a huddle? Raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. Woo, look around, look around, look around. Okay. Cool. So there's all these people that are walking with Jesus and walking with each other in a huddle. Now, if you're not in a huddle, you're like, okay, how can I invite somebody into a huddle if I'm not in one? Good. You know the answer to the first question. Just put your name right there. Okay? Pretty easy. Okay? So I want you to put your name right there in the front and say, I want to get into a huddle. How do I do that? I go to a missional community. I talk to my missional community leader, and they will lead me into a huddle. It's pretty simple stuff. Okay? So that's the first thing. I want you to invite somebody into a huddle. If you're already in a huddle, all you people, let's, there's all sorts of people who weren't raising their hands. It's a vast harvest full of people that need to be invited into a huddle. Okay? 
Number two, I want you to invite two people into your missional community. I want you to invite two people into a missional community, all right, that are not already churched, that they're not going, they're not connected into any church. Now, if they go to church somewhere and you ask them that, uh, and they're like, yeah, I already go to church with so-and-so, that's fantastic. Leave them alone. They need to go to their small group or whatever it is at their church, okay? That's a great thing. I'm talking about people who are not connected to any church whatsoever. Invite them. If it's a husband and wife, you've killed two birds with one stone. Wonderful, all right? Go ahead and do that. Write their name down there. The third thing is three random acts of kindness. Now, this is pretty easy. This is, this is good to do with your children as well. Write these down. What are you going to do? And I would encourage you not to just like pay for, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to pay for somebody in back of you at the Starbucks line, and they'll never see you, and they don't know who you are, and they don't even remember what the back of your car looks like by the time they get their free drink. That's good and all, but I want you to do something where you can actually look the person in the eye and say, I, you know, I just wanted to do this fun thing for you in a, as an act of kindness. Now, that would be, that would be really cool. Uh, so go ahead and write some, some ideas down. Uh, we'd love for you to do that. Number four. Now, this one's fun. I want you to invite. Now, you have a month to do this. I want you to invite four people over to your house for, for dinner who are, un, who are unconnected with the church. Invite them over for dinner. Now, if you've got a family of four, Bingo. All right. You've done it. All right. So it's so fantastic. All right. Four people over for dinner that are unconnected to any church. And we want you to intentionally invest into their life, get to know them so that it earns you the right of invitation. Okay. So four people and then five. Okay. Five for five. We're at number five now. I want you to invite them to church. Okay. So five people to invite to church and here's the deal. On September 18th, it's not only the morning service, which is going to be really cool, uh, but also we're going we're gonna to have a birthday party, and that's going to be fun. So at the Old Rice Retreat Pavilion, which is about a mile from here, uh, we're going to have a party. We're going to have inflatables, and I think we're going to do a chili cook-off kind of thing, and uh, it's going to be one big, huge meal. And we're just going to have a good time, games and stuff out there. Uh, it's going to be that evening, and we're just going to have a really good time together having a birthday party. Now, here's the deal. When you have a birthday party, church, you invite people to your birthday party, right? So that's what we're going to do. And I want you to go out and find people who are unconnected with the church and say, hey, we're having a birthday party. I'm part of that church. I'm inviting you to my birthday party. Okay? Isn't that fun? Yes, it's fun. Okay? <laughs> All right. So five for five. We made this card so that you can write on it. Go ahead and write on it. Uh, keep it in your Bible. Keep it in your purse. Whatever you want to do to make sure that it's uh, make sure that it's in front of you this entire month. And we want to see some great stories from this about how you're investing and inviting uh, people to be a part of what we have going on here at the Church of Game Bay. Okay. So one final thing. Let me come back and circle back around to something really important. I talked about folks, um, and there's probably several of you in this room who at one point in your life, you probably made some kind of emotional decision for Jesus. And, um, and you're really unsure about that. And let me tell you this. I got saved. Jesus, let me say that again. Jesus saved me when I was in fifth grade under the guidance of my Sunday school teacher, Mr. Walt. And Mr. Walt asked me some questions and I, uh, I responded to those questions, and I didn't fully understand the gospel. He shared it with me, and I prayed to receive Christ in that moment. It's a little fuzzy for me. I was 10. It's a little fuzzy history. And I had to walk for the next couple years, not because I made an emotional decision, but because I was just young, and my memories of that were kind of a little bit fuzzy. And so for years, I struggled with some doubt about my salvation. I didn't know if I had gotten in a car accident or something like that.